Folks, today's episode is brought to you by SiriusXM Satellite Radio. You may already know that SiriusXM brings you the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and for every mood. That's where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment and comedy, and hundreds of hand-curated music channels designed to fit every mood. It's where you get news from every source. It's where you can listen to the newly launched Fish Radio. Woo! In addition to Jam On, the Grateful Dead Radio, Pearl Jam Radio, Tom Petty Radio, and many more. It's where you can listen to top comedy channels such as Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Radio and Netflix is a Joke Radio. And sports talk radio from Barstool to ESPN and more to keep you up to date on the latest news in the sports world. Most people think you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. Subscribe now and listen outside the car, on your phone, online, and at home. And get your first three months for just a dollar. Visit SiriusXM.com slash Amigos, A-M-I-G-O-S, to see offer details and to subscribe and start listening today. That's SiriusXM, no car required. What's up? This is Mike Fenoya from Amigos, and Amigos Podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris Podcast. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Check out OsirisPod.com and stay in the loop. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to Amigos. This is your host, Mike Fenoya. I hope everyone's doing uh, great. It is uh, Sunday, August 4th. As always, you know, head over to iTunes and Spotify and all those places and uh, download and rate and share and subscribe and everything. And uh, follow at Amigos Pod and at Mike Fenoya on uh, social media. It's the 4th of August and um Saturday the 3rd was a was a pretty heavy day. Um uh, we lost someone in the comedy community um that was a a very special person. I'm still kind of reeling from it and I was going to wait to put this episode out, but then I thought, you know, I need something to do. I'm here in Las Vegas doing shows at the Comedy Cellar. I've been here all week. Um, and I've been working on a project and, uh, yesterday, Saturday, like right before the shows, my pal Jay called me and, uh, told me that, uh, we had lost someone, uh, very close to us in the comedy community and not to mention, uh, the world, you know, two mass shootings in, in one day, this shit has to stop and, uh, people need to start you know, really loving each other and, and, and cut the bullshit out with the violence. And, you know, we, we personally in the community that I'm in lost someone who, uh, you know, probably was one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, someone who always had a smile, someone who, uh, could ease your anxiety and, and, uh, make you feel worthwhile and welcome. And, and, uh, I don't know. The, the comedy is not an easy thing and uh just like music and any art and uh you know there are gatekeepers and there are industry people and there are 
you know, uh, snakes in the grass and there are, you know, angels every now and then. And, and, and our pal Dave was, uh, one of the good guys. And unfortunately due to a senseless act of, uh, violence, he lost his life, left behind, uh, a family and, um, I'm pretty heartbroken over it. And I, I just, I don't know. It, it, and then you, you try to turn away and see what else is going on in the world to try to get a, away from it. And you turn on, you know, the TV and, you know, you see that there's just, you know, two horrible atrocities that happen. So I, I hope that everybody out there is being kind to each other and loving each other. And uh, I guess really all I think about with this whole thing is just making sure that we take the chance to tell each other that you know we love each other and we care about each other and I think that's something that's really important with uh community and uh this project that I'm working on that I'm going to be releasing soon I've talked to a lot of people from the music community while working on it and I have the comedy community and um I'm very happy to have those two uh groups because uh you know we got to go through these things together and I just hope that everyone has someone to turn to and has someone to, you know, cry on their shoulder and be a shoulder for people to cry on. And um, I think we have to really, as a as a collective consciousness, get back to treating each other like we're heart. We have heartbeats. We have, you know, feelings and, and all of this. And it's just uh, it's, a, it's a heavy, heavy, heavy stuff these days. And um, I would just like to say thank you to uh my friend Dave, who's out there in the universe somewhere now, and, uh, you know, he was someone who always gave a shit, and uh, I, I learned a lot by watching people in this business and people in life, you know, you can learn from the good and the bad, and uh, he was, again, one of the good guys, so uh, I'd like to dedicate this episode to him and uh, his family, but on to the, uh, the episode. It's the days between. It's uh, August 1st through 9th, uh, our, our Grateful Dead holiday, and uh, I'm excited to bring you this episode. Um, I, I, I have Ken Babs, one of the merry pranksters, an author, um, a visionary, a, a counterculture pioneer and explorer uh, on the podcast today. Uh, I took a trip out to Portland, Oregon to do some shows at Helium Comedy Club a couple weeks ago and to work with the Impractical Jokers. And uh, while I was out there, I realized that uh, it had been 18 years since I did my interview with the legendary Ken Kesey, who I met at Darien Lake, New York, August 14th, 1997, when they pulled into the parking lot and joined Fish on stage. And uh, it was an unbelievable, life-changing experience for me. And it's something I've never forgotten. And I felt like it was something that was uh, loose and needed to be, uh, you know, made into a complete circle. And I reached out to Babs and asked him if while I was out there, if I could come visit and chat with him. And he said yes. And I rented a truck and I drove down to uh, Eugene from Portland and uh, hung out with, with Ken. Now, little background um, look up the show if you've never heard it, fish fan or not. Um, it's an amazing experience. I think it was something that was very important in uh, counterculture uh, history, where 
you know, Ken Kesey was sort of responsible for the Grateful Dead having their 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 introduction to improvisation and having a permission to fail and having a permission to grow and improvise and figure things out as they went at Kesey's acid tests. And um, he really kind of was a he, he opened a lot of doors for a lot of people, myself included and the Grateful Dead included. And when he came on stage August 1997, I kind of, it blew my mind because I grew up reading about the Grateful Dead and I loved the Grateful Dead. And I saw this guy, kind of this bald, smiling dude in all the pictures. And he was, uh, there was Keezy. And then I got to know who he was. And here I am, you know, meeting him in the parking lot. And, uh, they drove their bus from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were on a tour through the Northeast up heading to Canada so Keezy can do some readings. And he had the pranksters with him. And uh, their paths crossed mine. And it changed my life. And uh, I ended up keeping in touch with Keezy and uh, writing and sending him some of my creative writing. And for some reason, he wrote me back and I stayed in touch. And I asked him if I could interview him for a senior project in college, and he said yes. And I went out there with a tape recorder and no idea what to do. And I was nervous and uh, very, very, very unprepared and very scared. Uh, the night before, uh, this was my, this, the ju- my junior, the summer of my junior year in college, so right before my senior year was starting, uh, August of 2001. And I went to a bar, and I got hammered the night before going out there, and I almost missed the flight, and I was more hungover than I've ever been in my entire life on this flight, and I was freaking out about, you know, meeting him, and uh, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. I I showed up, and I I flew into Portland, Oregon. Uh, I was supposed to fly into Eugene, and I had to take a Greyhound bus a couple hours south, and see the beautiful Pacific Northwest coastline and uh, some of the farms and all this beautiful stuff. And I, and I ended up uh, making a friend in, in Kesey. And I uh, had a horrible, horrible quality interview. Uh, someone very talented is helping me kind of scrub the audio at this point, And I'm going to share it with you guys soon. But I conducted an interview and lived at Kesey's house and you know, we became buddies and I got to meet Babs and his family and they were all very, very kind. While I was hanging out, uh, Mountain Girl and John Barlow were up at Horning's hideout with String Cheese Incident and they asked Keezy if he wanted to come and Keezy said no, he wasn't really feeling good so he threw me his keys to his pickup truck and I drove up to Horning's hideout uh, caravanning with Keezy's son and Babs's son and met up with Mountain Girl and Barlow and all those guys and we saw string cheese at Horning's Hideout and I'm like what the hell am I doing here like this is the most surreal thing in the world and um, I I flew home and September 11th happened and then a month later Keezy died I think the last thing he wrote was a a piece for Rolling Stone about 9-11 and I also think it's kind of apropos that you know we do this episode now, because uh, when Ken picked me up in his truck, he had a sticker on the side of his truck that said, ban the bullet. It was something that his granddaughter 
uh, was doing in school, and she made a sticker that said "Ban the bullet" and it had a picture of a bullet with the no smoking red circle slash through it. And I thought it was really amazing, and I never forgot it. And uh, here we are today, you know, uh, with all with heavy hearts, kind of. And um, it, it's just wild to think back. So Kesey passed away. And he had liver failure, and it was kind of, wow, holy shit. And then I got in touch with Babs. This is back, you know, my senior year in college. And he's like, do something good with that interview. And I sat in the basement of my college library and transcribed these tapes that I had and ended up with a pretty, you know, dead-on interpretation of the interview. It took a lot of time took a lot of work and uh i i ended up publishing it in relics magazine relics magazine ended up hiring me the first job i had for them was to write a review of a 9-11 benefit that phil and bobby put on at the beacon theater and i wrote my review and it ended up on their front page of their website and i found out i had the gig and they ended up bringing me on board and i went to concerts and interviewed bands and wrote reviews and did some uh, pieces for them. I, I got to interview some of the early San Francisco concert poster artists, and I got to meet, you know, Jesus, Bob Weir and DJ Logic and The New Deal and Soul Live and Galactic and Ween and De La Soul and Damian Marley, um, a whole bunch of great people, and uh, it, it changed my life. And I went to Bonnaroo and worked the first ever Bonnaroo. And I had to sell subscriptions. And I got to hang out and make good friends and be a part of the scene that I loved so much. And I really owe it all to Keezy. Um, And then that led to a life of kind of going for it. And years later, going through a funk, I kind of thought about stand-up comedy. And I thought about what to do next. And I thought about Keezy and the pranksters and the bozos on the bus and the Darien Lake 97 show. And like, what the fuck? Why not just go for it? You get one chance, you know? And I tried it and I have been successful at it. And it's amazing. And I don't think about it enough. And I don't, uh, you know, really sit back and look at, holy shit, uh, what, what we've, you know, accomplished and all that. And I... I really do think that a lot of it has to do with the confidence that I gained after one of the most important counterculture figures in, you know, history just said yes to me and 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 invited me to his home and welcomed me and uh he he gave me a a fire and a confidence that I don't think I'll ever really be able to put into words. I'm trying now and I'm stumbling all over myself and I appreciate you guys listening. Um but Whatever you're doing, just go for it because you're you really have no idea when this thing is gonna end. And I, I, I again, um, it's just a it's it's a very interesting time right now. Being out here in Vegas for a week, um, you know, celebrate. I've been list, doing nothing but listening to the Grateful Dead. It's been 115 degrees every day here. Then these you know terrible tragedies happen, and then I end up losing my buddy. Uh, it's a lot. It's very heavy. Uh, but going back, I'm glad I, 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 you know, right before I got the news uh, about my friend, I finished editing this episode. 
and it was a hard uh, edit because there was a lot of moving around. Uh, I drove down to Eugene, the outskirts of Eugene, where Ken Babs lives, and I hung out in his house with him and his lovely wife, and I can't thank them enough for their uh, hospitality. Um, and, and he's in a really neat farmhouse and, uh, we were walking around and I was kind of following him around with the microphones and stuff like that. So thanks to a very good friend that's very talented. The audio is a little bit better, but, um, I threw some surprises in there from the show where I met the guys and, uh, I'm very happy that I had a chance to, uh, kind of, complete the circle or the circuit or whatever you want to call it by uh, going and chatting with Ken Babs about Keezy and getting a chance to look him in the eyes and really say thank you because, you know, I'm approaching 40 years old and I'm pursuing my, you know, I'm on my bus and uh, I, I hope that all of you are enjoying what, what I'm doing and I'm doing it for you and I'm doing it for me and I enjoy doing it. And I'm happy with where we're at with the music and with comedy and all of it. So thank you. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I hope that you're all uh, happy and safe. And, uh, you know, Mickey said it at the end of Fare Thee Well. uh, Be kind. Hello, Cyrus. Good evening, all. Welcome to the time capsule. The doors have been sealed, the portholes closed, and the space portals open as we blast into the past. So sit back and enjoy the trip to July 20th, 1969, when the astronauts have landed on the moon and on Earth, Michael Jackson is lacing up his moonwalking boots. While, while inside Ken Kesey's barn, the pranksters are capturing the historic event live. No, numbskull, not night, Michael Jackson. Here we go. <laughs> Away we go. Pow! Boom! back. We're here. Hi, Ken. Well, hi, Mike. Thank well, you. Well, I didn't expect to see you. I didn't recognize you in that suit. I'm glad you took the hat off. Yes, I'm hiding. I'm hiding. Oh, yeah. You know, you're Hayden. I'm Hayden. Yeah, really. I'm, I'm Litzed. <laughs> listening to one side and then the other. Out the other. I was driving up here listening to the uh, the the Creamery Grateful Dead show from 1972. The uh, Veneta. The, oh yeah. The, 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 the Creamery. You mean, you mean just the sound? The audio, yeah, not the video. So uh, they have that, just the audio of that? Yeah, you can listen to it on uh, on Spotify. Boy, crystal clear quality. I think you started off by... Uh, introducing. Yeah, introducing the band. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the hottest days ever, huh? Oh, yeah, it was the hottest day ever. I know, by the time it was at the end, when the sun was going down, the strings were all uh, warped, and the, or the wood was warped, the strings were all sprung, and the heads of the drums were all loose and googly, and My they God. did Dark Star, which was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's been voted every year the best Dark Star ever by Deadheads. Really? Uh-huh. It's such a beautiful show, and uh, you guys keep popping in and out, and I hear you. You know, there's a lot of babies that are crying because they haven't seen their mothers and fathers yeah. in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Anything that you guys ever did with the dead is such a treat to listen to because there really is a lot of playful, 
back and forth. Oh yeah, it we seemed were like good there friends. was no, yeah, yeah, you know, since the days when we first met and we're doing the acid test. Yeah, and we do a lot of when we did the acid test, we'd play together and rap together and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And when I came to visit last time, how far are we from Kesey's farm right now? Like About eight miles. Eight miles away. Yeah. You know, I was very happy that you showed up at his house because I was very scared. I was I was a nervous uh, kid uh, uh, and uh, I was uh, alone with you know my hero. And it was very, uh, I, I was 20 years old, 21 years old. Uh-huh. He was the first person I ever interviewed. <laughs> I just reached out thinking that he would say, like, email me some questions. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, him and you were both nice enough to reply back and forth to me after we met at the Fish concert. Yeah. And uh, then you came over and we went into the barn and we played with the Thunder Machine. Uh-huh. And we played with the saxophone. You were playing the saxophone, uh-huh. I believe. Um how fun! I mean, what an unbelievable experience for a 21-year-old kid yeah, that had uh, never left the East initiation. Coast. Initiation is right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back now in Oregon, 18 years later. What did you do with that interview? Did you type it up and public print it out, or what? He died, and and what I did was I exchanged the interview for a job at Relics Magazine. That's where it was in Relics, Relics Magazine. Relics is a good outfit, incredible. Yeah. And they gave me the opportunity. You know, it's funny. I was in New York City, hair down to here, believe it or not, and uh, I walked into Relics's office and I said, "Here's Keezy's interview. I believe it's the final interview because it was right around the time it was August, mid-August." Yeah. I don't expect a lot of money. I'm nobody in the journalism world. I just want an opportunity to write about music. And that night, Phil Lesh and Bob Weir were playing at the Beacon Theater as a benefit for September 11th. And they got me tickets, and I went into the show, and I reviewed the show, and I handed in my review, and they liked it, so they gave me a job and decided to publish the interview. Oh, good. Which ended up turning me onto a world that I never... really thought existed (laughs) i had the opportunity to be you could do anything in the world (laughs) and i think that uh ken was the first person to say that to me Uh just by inviting me out here yeah you know but treating me like uh that was his thing all the time for everybody to tell him follow your bliss yeah Uh what in yourself you'd be the star of your own movie Uh i saw an interview with you recently when you were talking about he went into someone's kitchen (laughs) <laughs> and started took over and started making eggs and everything and someone said huevos rancheros huevos <laughs> whateveros huevos <laughs> whateveros that's it yeah and she said he's not too far from his childhood no she said you're you're very close to your inner child aren't that's you? right <laughs> i got that in my book i've just written yeah i'm excited to talk to you about the book yeah um cronies cronies yeah. cronies you had a pretty great you guys had a very tight bond. Well, yes, we were best friends and did everything together. I mean, 43 years, we did so much together. And plus, we lived close to each other. And, uh, you know, so like we could be together a lot and work on things together. I mean, farming, he was a farmer, and I was sort of a farmer. And yeah. Haying every year with him and doing all the stuff on the upkeep of the fences and all that. Yeah. And then the bus, of course, uh, that was the big one in 1964. Yeah. And then when uh, he retired that bus and then got another one, we continued to do all those bus trips together. Right. You know, until, well, until he died. Yeah. That trip out here, I said outside when, when I pulled into you, that uh, how full circle it is and how kind of emotional. Uh-huh. 
this has all been to me. Driving here, I had uh, the same butterflies yeah. that I did when I came here when I was 21 years old. Yes. And it's a that you know that good anxiety. Yeah. Oh, really? When it's like you know, yeah, like I just can't wait to talk to you yeah, and, uh, and that, nervous at the same time. Yeah, but also <laughs> very um, just a a good nervous. Yeah, thing. I know. Not a, not a. Not like I'm getting blood drawn. No, I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm like that today because I'm doing a thing tonight. But coming out here at, at such a young age and doing the interview, I don't think I would have had the confidence to try a lot of the things that I ended up trying in life if it wasn't for meeting you guys August 14th, 1997 uh-huh. at Darien Lake, New York at a fish concert. Oh, that was spe- that was special. That was a special day. Yeah, Do you remember? Oh God, yeah. And they even have it a little bit of it on YouTube, and uh, and they have the audio uh, yep. on YouTube. I, I listen to it I regularly. Check, yeah, me too. I check it out every once in a while. Do you remember? So you guys, from what I remember, with talking to you about it, was you were on your way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We were coming from the Rock and Roll Fame Hall of Fame and heading for Toronto, where we Keezy was supposed to have an appearance there. Right. So uh, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wanted the bus there for uh, on display. It was the celebration of the '60s. Uh, they had John Lennon's car, you know, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, we uh, got us to go there. We had the bus shipped to Chicago on a flatbed uh, truck, and then we flew to Chicago, and then drove to Cleveland, stopping in. Uh, we were in Chicago for a while. Kesey spoke there. And then we went to Cleveland and Columbus, and uh, uh, finally, you know, Columbus, I can't remember what order, but both those places, but then at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but then he had this gig in uh, Toronto, so we left there to go there, and we just happened to go to that Fish concert. Uh, I Amazing. don't know how that happened, because it was on the way, and then one of the Fish guys came in the bus and got us to come up on the stage. So here we are again, standing at the base of the mountain for the first time in a while. And this is a, uh, a very uh, a different and interesting uh, time for Colonel Forbin here, who is right now trying to climb the mountain and find the great and knowledgeable Nicholas, who is going to solve all of his problems and uh, everybody else's problems that lives in the area. So he's climbing up the mountain here and he's looking for the great and knowledgeable Nicholas who's going to solve all his problems. Unfortunately, on that day, he can't find him. So he's crawling around up there with all the rocks and boulders and he's crawling over one boulder and over another. And uh, everywhere he looks, he can't find him. And finally, he comes around the corner and he sees a man standing there and he realizes that on this particular day, he's not going to find the great and knowledgeable Nicholas at all. But instead, he is going to find... (laughs) Ken Uncle Sam... Bozo, easy cheesy, standing there. There he is now. Ken, Uncle Sam, Bozo, easy cheesy. I was in the parking lot and I saw the bus pull in and I've had pictures of the bus cut out 
teenage girls have pictures of like you know david cassidy and all that on their walls and uh-huh. i had jerry garcia and you guys when i was a kid yeah, it was good. really just such a fa- like i was such a fan right off the bat of the you guys were the friends that i wanted uh-huh. do you know what i mean like as a yeah. kid i was like there's a certain freedom yeah. just in seeing it and uh-huh. and looking at old pictures of uh the Fillmore East in the seventies and some of the, you know, like Watkins Glen with 500,000 people across a field when you're, when you're young and you've only know the four walls of your town, <laughs> those things kind of seem sort of larger than yeah, big time, big time. And I, yeah. and, and so when I saw you guys pull in and I went running over and Keezy opened up the back doors, uh-huh. Up the emergency exit and went, whoa, like a big loud roar. And I was right there, and it just, the, all the hairs on my body stood up, and he just, it was like this psychedelic Santa Claus, just like looking down, and he, whoa, and I said, hi. <laughs> and he reached down and he helped my girlfriend up onto the bus. And I went onto the bus and I met you. And I I remember running right in and I remember asking like, where did Garcia sit? Where did Garcia sit? And you guys explained that the original, like the, 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 the 64, what? I, yeah. The original bus was is 60. Yeah. The harvester yeah. was back in on the farm yeah. and you, you know, showed me everything with the, you know, the new bus and, I got a card in Trepid Trips. Yeah. Ken Kesey, Chief Sambo. Yeah. And the phone number and the email and everything was on it. Yeah. And I got your card. And yeah. and then I went to college and I wrote. And I sent some writing to him. Uh-huh. And he read it. And he said, uh, read more Burroughs. <laughs> He's a writer's writer. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, holy shit, Ken Kesey wrote back. Uh-huh. He didn't have to do that. Well, he'll do it. And he he did it. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm one of a million people. Uh-huh. I don't feel any, you know. Uh-huh. But then that happened, and uh, I asked if I could come out and visit. And he said yes. And I accidentally flew to Portland. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not driving to Portland to come yeah, get you. He no. said, take a Greyhound bus. Yeah. And I came down and he picked me up in, in the center of town and we hung out and had dinner. And I didn't know how to interview anybody. Uh-huh. And I just, he started telling me stories and he goes, are you recording this? And I said, no. And he goes, this is really good shit. Yeah, yeah. Turn, your <laughs> Turn your recorder on. on. So yeah. I went and grabbed it and yeah. um, you showed up and I got to meet your son and I got to meet Zane uh-huh. and uh, a lot of people and... uh the the friend the family feeling the welcoming uh-huh. even today you having me here um, it's something I've carried with me for quite a while. Good. Extend that to others. Yeah, I, yeah, I, really, I know that's the whole that's the whole game. Yeah, I mean it's all this stuff we do and everything is a lot of fun and everything, but the real stuff is how we relate to every single person we meet. You know, uh, Kesey was really good at that. I don't care if it was a bum falling down on the street, he'd get up and talk to him, and just like it was the president of the United States. Yeah, equal man to man, and you know people appreciate that more than anything, more than a handout or anything. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I think that that's. Unfortunately, you don't see. I well, mean, it's are, out there, but it's well, yeah. But most people are scared. 
you know, they're frightened. And what do you think it is that they're frightened of? Well, they're frightened of some of the unknown, of uh, ready to strike at any second, and it could be come from that guy that's right there with that funny looking haircut and that. What is he holding in his hand? Is he gonna stab me with that thing? <laughs> well, all he's doing is asking for a handout. That's it. That's really <laughs> no, it. No, I don't know what makes people afraid. That's one of the uh, uh, things you learn in life how to. Not let fears dominate you, but the good stuff. You, yeah. you work with the good stuff. This is really what life is all about, and uh, what I'm appreciating more about it is, as you learn to get older, is to control the stuff that you think about. Is that you don't let uh, bad stuff come in your head. I mean, if it does, you you kick it out. I've got so I name all these different traits that come in, like this uh, one way. Being a writer of fiction and reading a lot of fiction, sometimes I'll get a little plot going in my head and sometimes it'll turn into a, a gunfight or something like that. As soon as it happens I say, no, no violence. I said, violent, leave. And so I kick him out. Really? And I say, where's my girl? I have a girl that's, I call her uh, Bene. She's for bene, benev, benevolent. Ooh. For the benevolent thoughts. I said, Bene. Come I hang out. <laughs> yeah, and she'll say, Oh, yes, uh, instead of uh, trying to shoot this guy, I think uh, we'll go down to the lake here and catch some fish ah, or something like that. You know? Perfect. So you change the plot. Like yeah, that. that's that's beautiful. And I know. And so it's with all it, like uh, drinking. We talked about drinking, you know, when yeah. I realized I was drinking too much uh, that I thought, I got to knock this off. It's bad. But uh, there is a guy in my head that I call him Alki for alcoholic. Really? <laughs> yeah, and, I, and as soon as I have it, like sometimes in the morning, I'll want to get a beer or something. I say, shut up, Alki. Too early. <laughs> well, you can wait. We're all waiting here. Alki, you go back to the, bed. Yeah, go back to bed. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, go, out, go out for a run or something. <laughs> go out for a run. Yeah. Alki, cut the lawn. Yeah, see, so these are actual... And I read this in a book one time about about this that this author was saying that these are actual beings that exist, and they they cannot they don't have uh, three dimensional bodies, and the only way they can work in the three dimensional world is by getting in your head and having you do the reenact do all the acts for them. Yeah, you know, and you, you uh, kind of become the landlord. You, at, well, you are the landlord. You're not actually you're not the landlord. The body, you're it's a democracy. Ah, we okay. all have equal say here, you know, yeah. all your organs in your body and all your muscles, all parts of you have equal say. No one can be the boss, mm -hmm. except there is a certain, uh, what you would call, uh, not a moderator, but uh, sort of like that, you know, that an overseer, which can handle things when they come up that, that you don't want happening. Yes. You got to have that. I don't, I don't know what to call that. Will, sometimes I call him Will. Willie. For, yeah, you know, not Willie. bad. Yeah. My grandfather's Willie, so anytime yeah. a, yeah. a Willie also, is in charge. You, also, your Willie is a big thing, too. It really is. And we, yeah, we think that's true. And he's got uh, about 15 tenants living in that little sublet down I'll there. Bet. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, a little sublet. That's good. You yeah, know, so, uh, so this is... This is part of the fun of life is, uh, is is working these things out and hipping other people, you know. Yeah. I get a lot of people that are all fucked up, you know, and various things and that. And so to me, it's the main thing is get that shit out of your head, man. If it's not, if you get it out of your head, you'll be all right. Do you mean like when it comes to like, you know, 
substances and stuff like that, or just well, like I demons or, or well, voices? Well, I don't know. Why. I mean, so who knows what it is? But it's you know, it's they're they're messed up in their minds. Yeah. Know, and who knows what it is? But so they to you out to get straight because they come. They well, you know, they go, oh, what are we gonna do? Well, I said you got to straighten all that shit out in your mind, man. I've I've always had a thought about how, as a kid, I feel like we start out as this kind of straight line right and then at some point something happens that kind of kinks the the fabric or kinks the wire and that hands you a lens that you begin to see things a little bit differently and if you just went back let's say a year or a moment think that we kind of need to realize that these moments don't need to uh define us you know what i mean like i think that there are some well that's the other thing is that we're all fuck ups? We're fuck ups, all of us, because 100%. we have to be because we're not perfect beings. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We're yeah. material beings in a material world, so we're screwing up all the time. But you cannot let your fuck ups hang you up. Right? You know, you got to move on from them. And then after a, a while, you realize, hey, wait a minute, that was a good experience yeah. when you think about it. And for me, as a storyteller and a writer, I realize. Most of my screw-ups are my best stories. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Most of my jokes. That's it. My my jokes, the, the things that I did that are the worst things. Yeah, I know. Make people laugh the hardest. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I know, because we've all been there. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, and uh, so then also I tell people, you know, that they're all unhappy and all I said, oh, wait a minute. I said, you're all right. I said, oh, but I, this happened to me when I was a kid. I said, I know, but that doesn't matter. I said, it's important in your life, all these things, but everything that's happened to you, you are the summation right now of everything that's happened to you up to this moment, good, bad, whatever, and you're okay. So think of yourself as being rich with all these things. Absolutely. Experience. That's yeah. very true. You know, everybody has to navigate their own sphere. And also the real... The other real lesson to learn in life is how to groove in whatever situation you're in, to find that groove and, and, you know, and not be brought down by it or scared by it or anything, but to be able to grow in it you know, and, and be, um, be yourself. You know, and yeah. uh, not only while you're grooving, uh, getting the other people too. I, I say all the time to people that say they hate their jobs and that, I say, I say yeah, that's because you're not doing the real work. And they say, what are you talking about? I said, Everybody has to have a thing where you make money, I says, and it may be, you know, not all that much fun, but you're mixing with other people, and you have all these relationships going on there, and when and in a lot of these situations, a lot of people need help. I mean, they need to be uh, buoyed up. They need to be uh, uh, enjoying themselves, so your job is to uh, do that, uh, uh, make their uh, job fun, you know, for all of them. And then if you have some asshole as a boss or something, or somebody that's being a bully and all that, how to mediate between the two, you know, and diffuse the situations, you know, and, yeah. and not let those things grow into some kind of, you know, combative, hateful thing. And it's, and it's, it's so true because I think that when you begin to, uh, think about others and, and act from a part, a point of empathy and compassion, you don't really have a lot of time to think about yourself. And I think that when you start to think about yourself, that's when the real bad shit starts to happen. You know, well, yeah, when, when you start going through things in your mind. Yeah, yeah, am I doing this? Am I doing that? What can I be doing this better? Am uh, I getting fat? Am yeah. I? But when you when you are uh, when you're able to look at someone and say in your own mind, how can I make their life a little bit brighter? How can I make their life? That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I think we forget that. Quite well, a sure, bit. I, I know think, people don't have that as their main. Uh, 
emphasis in what they're doing. Did you guys consciously sit down as the pranksters and say, this is what we're going to do, or did it just find you? Our thing evolved uh, because uh, we people ask that a lot, what your mission was, where you're going. We never really had anything like that or had a, uh, you know, worked out stuff that we were going to do. I mean, aside from our plans for a show or something. Like sure, that. driving but across I, country you know, takes a, a plan. Yeah, yeah, I like to go to New York to Kesey's uh, publication party of Notion and film and tape the whole thing and make a movie out of it. That was what we were doing. Yeah. So uh, that that was that sufficed. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be a movie that would never have been done before. It would be not a true documentary. It would be documentary, but with lots of stuff. Because the real prankster bit is the bit to come on and invent and uh, be spontaneous uh, eruptions happening, uh, you know, of a creative way. Yeah. Uh, with music and with uh, talk and with uh, even action, since it was uh, that we were shooting a movie. Yeah. And uh, uh, then, then, uh, and not only that, but with the added ingredient of LSD in the, in the mix, uh, that uh, LSD fueled a lot, you know, the whole trip uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And uh, always has. When we came back, we'd edit it and put it out on the big screen and it would be like something that had never been seen before. Yeah, it was amazing. I know. When I came to visit, we watched a bunch of it. You guys were working. We, we dipped... Uh, those boxes? We were dipping boxes. I helped out with that. And uh, You came when we finally accomplished what we were trying to do, which was to get that movie out. because uh, In search of a cool place. Yeah, Intrepid Traveler is merry band of pranksters. Look for, the cool, look for a cool place. Yep. Or is it may have even been the cool place. Yeah. Uh, I went home with two of them. And, uh, those boxes? Those, the, yeah, the tapes. You guys signed them. And uh, I went home with the further inquiry. Uh, the book, that's the good. hardcover book. Oh yeah, that was good. And uh, a couple of other books that uh, I didn't already have. I had Demon Box and Notion and uh, the, the 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 Roundup, the um, last go around. The last go around. Yeah. Writing with with uh, with Keezy must have been. Did you guys have a process when it came to writing a book together? Well, I, I, we, I think about that over sometimes. the years we did a lot of stuff together, and most of the stuff together we just did uh, without you know. But when we had we first worked on uh, last go around we had this idea for a movie to be shot at the Pelmonton round cup because we went over there and saw the roundup and realized the arena was built in 1911 the first roundup and it is exactly the same as it was then wow and then there was this story that everybody knows that happened at the roundup you know between the three guys tying for the end you know and having to have the last go around and yeah. determine the winner and so we used that as a kind of a template and thinking that we could make a movie out of it because we could film it right there, see, in the actual spot, just like it was. Yeah. And uh, so the screenplay got written, and a lot of stuff happened with that, and it wasn't getting sold, and there were a lot of complications and everything. And so I said to Keezy one time, I said, well, let's write, let's turn it into a novel. And uh, people read the novel and say, hey, this would make a good movie, <laughs> and then maybe you can sell it, as a, a, sell it then to the movies. Right. Yeah. So that's what we did, and so uh, we kind of used the uh, the screenplay as a template, you know, because a lot of it was sure. in there. But then we added on to it, and, and the and it was really a lot of fun. 
it was we did it upstairs in his barn there and in his kind of writing place and we had it set up and he writes everything out in longhand he, yeah uh, so uh, what he would write in longhand he'd give it to me and I had bought this uh, word processor uh, one of the earliest ones that had a screen and it had a typewriter you type it on the typewriter and then it would be transferred into the screen and it could type it up again you know oh wow and you could work on it and ty- it would type it up again I still got it in there I got all these computers and processors I that's pretty neat <laughs> up there is even a, an Apple II computer that uh, my kids had in high school probably weighs 900 pounds huh that, no that little Apple II computer Oh, the small. Apple. Oh, really? Oh, no, the other guy thinks big. Yeah. Right? Typewriter. Yeah, sure, but sure. Yes. So uh, he would write that out, and I'd put it into the, uh, I'd type it, I'd go to the, and I'd work on it. I'd read it, and as I'm reading it, and I'd see things, I'd add things or anything, and I'd give it back to him, the typed up thing, and he'd go all through it, you know, changing things, adding things, and give it to me, I'd go through it again. We'd go back and forth with that, each wow. chapter, till we were both happy, and then we'd put that aside, and we'd go to the next one. Interesting. I know. Wow. It was really good. That's, every, that's we amazing. We did that every day in his place until we were done. Yeah. yeah. You know, as a, as a comic, there's uh, every now and then I'm able to, I have a couple of buddies that I can trust where I can say, I've got this idea for a joke. It's going to grow. The, the roots are starting to, yeah. you know, and then, and then if, I'm, if I have a show, similar to what I think The Grateful Dead did, was when you're comfortable with the audience and you start to play a couple songs to warm up, you're like, hey, let's try this new jam out a little bit. And yeah. that's when I'll go, I know the first line uh-huh. of this of the bit, and I kind of dive into the deep end head first to yeah. see, but it's see where, you come see where I come out, and yeah. I record everything, so yeah, I'm so able to go back and listen. I can I think I learned that from you guys That's, that you recorded that everything. That is good because that we that was one of the first things we learned. I mean, Keezy and I, even when we were at Stanford, when we first met, I had a real real tape recorder. We'd stay up late at night rapping in the tape recorder and making up stories and all that to see if we could really do this off the tops of our heads. Yeah. And we did it for a lot, a lot of times, even all the way up until the bus trip. And uh, until we started getting off the floor, we'd stay up late at night, even with Cassidy and Ginsburg and all these other guys, and wrap out whole novels uh, all night long. But then we realized we had to listen to it to see if it was any <laughs> good or not. That's the hard part. Well, yeah, but it's the necessary part. Of course. It is hard part. You want to move on. You just just leave it behind. (laughs) But we knew we had to do that for that reason, to determine if what you're doing is any good or not, and also to see what works and what doesn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important part of it. Now, writing cronies, can we talk about that for a sec? Well, first of all, it's not a memoir. So it's not literally what happened, and it's not fiction, which uh, I, uh, in fiction, when you do that, you... What was it that we're supposed to say? Ladybug, ladybug. Fly away home. Fly away home. Your kids are on fire, and the dog needs a bone. Yes. Then you flick it with your finger. (laughs) Go give the dog a bone, ladybug. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) It's not, it's, it's, um, I think Tom Wolfe called it creative nonfiction. That's a good word for it. Yes, I always love that. That's uh, stand-up comedy to me. Yeah, yeah, the electric Kool-Aid acid test was his uh, gonzo writing and everything, and, and, and he, was, he was a master of it. So mine is, mine is unique because I found this uh, literary uh, genre, a legitimate literary uh, form, which is called a burlesque. And the definition is uh, historical occurrence embellished with inventions and exaggerations. 
That's beautiful. I know. So yeah. I thought, well, that, there you go. That frees me to, because, you know, I can't remember everything exactly. And I don't <laughs> yeah. want to, you know, have it be a memoir. I don't want all about me or and all that shit. No, it's boring, right? Yeah, well, it is to me. So uh, I, and so it's a sequence of stories. And they start with me meeting Kesey at Stanford in uh, 1958 and uh, ending when he died in 2001. And it's adventures with uh, Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, and the Merry Band of Pranksters. Oh, it frees me uh, uh, from a lot of stuff. And it's, gonna, it's like I say, it's different. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you is there is an example of it in American literature. And it's called uh, Knickerbocker's History of New York City, written by uh, Deedless Knickerbocker. Oh, wow, okay. And it's it was in the late 1700s. And that's the burlesque it was writing. A, it was a burlesque. Yes. It is a burlesque, yes. yes. Oh, and, cool. Uh, I'll have to check it out. It, it, yeah. And uh, it caused a sensation uh, in New York City, you know, which that's where all the uh, literary stuff was happening. And, sure. Uh, because uh, of all the things that were said in this book, like, why is the mayor of New York City meeting all the ships that are bringing in immigrants and hiring the, most, the prettiest young ladies to work in City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> hey, who is this Knickerbocker? Why is he saying these things? And then ads would begin to appear in the paper. Yes, we want this uh, Knickerbocker to be found and brought in front of us so that we can straighten him out. Wow. Let's get this Knickerbocker. <laughs> and this went on Amazing. for I know. This went on for a while. It was a, a, a big sensation. It's like Doyle with Sherlock Holmes in yeah. a way, right? Like, create <laughs> this like, where's Sherlock Holmes? You know? Uh, I know, but it was, a, it was a big deal. And so finally the author revealed himself. Really? Yes, it was. Uh, who wrote uh, uh, The Tales of the Catskills? The. Uh, Headless Horseman. Washington Irving? Washington Irving. Really? He yeah. wrote... Oh, no kidding. I'm yeah. a huge fan of his. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Legend and, of Sleepy Hollow, I think, is one of the greatest things yeah, ever Legend, written. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, uh, yeah, so here, the biggest he, time writer of all, with this burlesque, I thought, <laughs> well, shit, that's for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so that's that's what I use as uh, my model for my book. And uh, uh, he, he is the first author in America to make a living by... Writing, really? Uh, I guess you're right. Yeah, because he was before Twain, and he was before. Oh yeah, 1700s. Yeah. Twain was 1800s. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you remember the day that you met Kesey in Stanford? Oh yeah, sure. It's the first chapter of my book. Right away, did you guys go? There was, oh yeah, there was, we hit it off right, right, away. right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could tell that we had stuff going. Was it music? Did you guys get? Uh... It was talking to each other. Yeah. And uh, telling stories to each other. About ourselves and that, and tripping out, tripping out. Yeah, yeah. Now, were you involved? Did you t- did you like toy around with LSD at all before knowing him, or no, no? The LSD came about because uh, he he was going to Stanford and he got brought in by a friend of his to these experiments being done in uh, the VA hospital there, yeah. uh, in which they were given these guys different drugs and everything because they were trying to see what they did to them you know and truth serum type stuff right and all yeah, that all kinds of different stuff to see how the people see if they could use it yeah you know, and it turned out you know they we didn't he didn't know at the time who was doing it, but it turned out it was the cia was behind all this yeah and one of the things was uh, could this be used for uh, soldiers and spies to make them you know all that bullshit but anyway they he, every once in a while they get this one drug that 
whoa, this is something. And then they'd compare notes with the other guys. Yeah, yeah. man. And so they'd say, <laughs> let's do this. Well, when we get this, let's pretend that nothing's happening mm. and just act normal and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so because if nothing's happening with any of these drugs, they let, they let them out. So then they would be out on the streets high. Wow. First ones you know, here in America. Uh, so uh, The mental fortitude to hold it together on a good jolt of acid while lab coats are asking you questions. I mean, that shows the, the brute mental strength of, of Keezy. To be able what to it shows it. is the normalcy of all these guys. Sure. That all these guys were regular guys being raised by regular families and were not a bit, uh, you know, uh, inclined to crackpotness in any way, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which gave him the strength to be that, yeah. to be like that. So he came out on the streets ready. Yeah, okay. So, and then the, the whole thing ended. And at the same time, Kesey got a job at that same place as an aide, you know, in the VA hospital. And one day he was in there looking out. He was in this room and they had a window. You could watch him out in the day room in there. And there was a door over on the side there. And he realized that was the office of the doctor who uh, ran the, uh, the drug tests for him. Uh-huh. So he looked on the wall and he saw keys there. And he went up and got a key and he checked it out and got in there. And he wasn't snooping around and he opened a drawer in the... Uh, desk and uh, his eyes got big and his hair kind of stood up and his aura started bouncing off the room and all the lights were going and everything. He picks up this bottle and it's a bottle of 500 uh, hits of LSD from Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland. So he put in the first, stock. like the real, the, the yeah, yeah, the real stuff, the Hoffman, for, yeah, from yeah. Hoffman. Oh, 500 uh, hits. Yeah, and so he... Uh, I quit. Locked, <laughs> no, he locked the door and uh, uh, went back to work, but then he took it there. And by then, there were a bunch of us around Stanford then where we were gathering. In fact, this place he lived on Perry Lane was kind of a little artist colony. Yeah. These cabins all gather around there. I saw pictures. It seemed yeah, like such Thorsten a cool place. Verblins place yeah. from back in the 30s yeah. and uh so uh we were all were already going there you know and playing bongos and guitars and drinking gallo wine you know reading kerouac yeah, yeah yeah all that and uh and people would write and read stuff they written all that kind of hit, uh, stuff but then we were all started taking lsd there too do you remember the first time you, you guys? No, not at all. The first time, but no. I can remember, you know, what the experiences were. Yeah. People were always asking me about LSD, you know, this and that. And that. I said, the only thing I can say about LSD is what happened to me. Right. I, said, no, I can't totally. talk about any other thing about it. And, 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 it and nor should that, you. You know well, what I mean? I mean, right. I said, but there are people who like to do that, like Mountain Girl. She's she's really big in the LSD scene because you know it's come around again where they're exploring LSD for all these. Legitimate reasons, you know, like treating schizophrenia and uh, alcoholism and all that. There's which a lot is of, good. There's a big uh, there's a big thought process around microdosing, where you uh, take yeah. a little bit of mushrooms, a little bit of yeah. ketamine, a little bit of, and you take it on a. Uh, I suffer from a pretty heavy amount of uh, anxiety and shit like that that I've been trying to deal with my whole life, and I. You know, you go talk to a doctor, and they go, "Well, try this pill. Take uh, an antidepressant, or taking it." And I and I've I've had down moments where yeah. I've said, you know what, like it's a, I'm in a funk. Maybe let's try this. Uh-huh. And I and I didn't like how mechanical and how dirty and toxic yeah. 
internally yeah. a pill would make me feel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going for a jog or having sex or taking a tiny bit of mushrooms or whatever, that feeling after, right after those, those moments or... That's kind of that feeling I, I chase, you know, yeah. and it's uh, that, 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 that's what this kind of gives you. It's All a right. nice, like, everything's okay, and you get your mind off yourself a little bit. Yeah. I think, again, to go full circle from how we started, I think that that's, and I can only speak for myself, yeah. like you said, I float in a sensory deprivation tank. I absolutely love it. I, uh, You've done that? I've done it. I, oh. do it. I do it once a week. No shit. Can. Where do you do that? It's the greatest thing in the world. Any, anywhere go I go. To? I bet you there's one in Eugene. I'll look it up before we leave. Nah, never mind. I don't want to You do don't want to do it? Fuck no, man. Why? I don't want to do anything. Why? Because I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the best. <laughs> what the fuck? What's happening now with with Ken's farm, I mean, is there... Is oh, there... I wanted to tell you that. Yeah, after it sat for a long time, it was his granddaughter... Well, actually, it was his uh, son-in-law, Jay Smith, who took over the farm, uh, haying and cattle and all that. And then Jay's daughter, Kate, got interested in using the farm as a place uh, for uh, artists in residence program. Really? So they cleaned it all up, the place all up, and put in rooms for people to sleep and all this stuff, and a performing room upstairs wow. in the barn. And so every summer she has six artists come in for two or three weeks and, and do their artwork and everything. And at the end, they have a party and a thing where each person shows what they have done. Wow, that's amazing. I know. It's, it, oh, that's it's so cool. It's that whole place just back to life. I mean, it's yeah. beautiful now. Was it, when I when I was out there visiting at that point, so 2001, uh-huh. it was fairly, like, overgrown, and Ken wasn't feeling so hot. I yeah. mean, it was pretty obvious when I was there that he was, uh, you know, he had he had quite a you know runny nose the whole time, and he got tired quick yeah. and, and all that, so, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but I remember... Um, I slept in a bed that was two lips. Do you remember that? Two what? Lips, like a mouth. Like he had these room, these beds off to the right when you walked into the place. There were these beds. This is how at least I remember it. Do you remember there was like that in his house? In his house, there was like that extra room where you kind of oh got yeah into a bunk. oh oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant in his living room. No 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 in his in that spare bedroom. Yeah yeah okay. And uh, you know it was hard to go back and listen to the tapes because we did most of the interview in his car in his truck. Oh yeah, so it didn't come out too good. With the windows down yeah. and he was eating peanuts. <laughs> and he kept like taking a bite and throwing the shell out the window. And yeah. I'd have to dodge the peanut shells and, uh, and all that stuff. So. Is the old bus still back yeah. there? Yeah, we put the old bus and retired it down in the swamp where it would rust in peace. But then Zane decided he'd take it out and get it restored. Really? And this was, I don't know how many years ago. And uh, so it, it fi- and this is even with the other bus in existence, the new bus in existence. Yeah, and so about every uh, few years, there's another big push to get restored. Yeah. That's going on now again. <laughs> I, I'm going to send you some pictures I found that I took of the old bus with uh, with Ken. You know, he he started to scrape away at the moss. Oh, it was down there in the swamp. And the the 
he was so blown away by how the um, whatever natural elements in the moss brought out the vibrance of the paint job. Oh god, it's amazing! And it was so cool that like the moss, the moss somehow helped the paint. It gave it a psychedelic edge to it, everything. It, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So we sat there, put, like, well, scraping away well, while well. thousands of peacocks ran around. And it was just such, a, <laughs> such an amazing experience, man. Yeah. It was really just a, such a such a kick-ass guy. and, and, and uh, Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful down there. So anyway, it sits now in the bus barn uh, right next to the new bus. They, they sit right side by side. When the, when the acid tests first kind of got started and the Grateful Dead were just a bunch of young punks coming and uh, hanging out and... Oh, they were more than that. Pulling on your... Uh, no. The, the shirt tails and no, stuff. No, it wasn't like that. They no. weren't, huh? No, they were musicians right from the get-go. Yeah. And uh, when... Uh, it was Keezy lived on Perry Lane there in, in Palo Alto and uh, Alan Trist, at this, they lived in this house called the Chateau, a big place. And he brought them up to meet Keezy. Yeah. All of them. And so Keezy... And they left and everything. Someone said, who are those guys? And he says, oh, a bunch of hairy musicians. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, I don't know how we caught them somewhere, but uh, we were starting to do the acid test. And they, I think they just, oh, I remember where it was. It was the party I threw at my house in, uh, in Santa Cruz. It was a Halloween party. And they all showed up and played there. Yeah. And so then we all played together from then on. Amazing. I mean, they weren't even the Warlocks then. It was before anything, right? Well, they started out when they first became a band. I, they had two or three names, and then Mother McCree's Jug Band was yep. the one everybody knows about. But uh, from then, the Warlocks. And then when we were doing the, the acid test is when they they picked the name Grateful Dead. They had to change it because there was a band on the East Coast called the Warlocks. Called the Warlocks, right. Pretty perfect. I know, I know. You know, uh, Bob Hunter said when they started out, he he hated that band. He didn't think it was any good. But then he, after a while, came to understand it and, and appreciate it, how That's a unique cat. and wonderful it is. That's a cat that I would love to chat with. What a brilliant guy. You should go online and read these two interviews he did with Rolling Stone recently. Unbelievable. I read, read them. I did. Uh, out of this world. Oh, uh, gosh. I mean, just so telling and so... That one day in London, uh, where he wrote three of like probably the most beautiful songs ever written. Yeah, yeah and, but to me the most meaningful stuff was the way that. Have you listened to this song? Uh, Days between. Yes. Where him and Jerry feel like they had finally found a different way of writing yes, together. Yes, and, and they, they and Hunter saw that they would have a, that the band and everything would go in a new direction and yeah. a deeper direction, and that his writing was getting better. Yeah. Uh, and it is the writing in that song is terrific. Do you ever do you ever hear from or chat with any of the guys from the dead? Do you ever hear from like Phil or Mickey or Billy or any of those guys? Or I don't see them very often. I'd like to see them. Uh, Phil Ish was here over the last weekend at the Oregon Country Fair with his band. Yeah, but I wasn't able to go and see him. No, I saw Bill and. F- Phil and Bob Weir with uh, one of their bands, and they played in Eugene at the outdoor concert one time. I went and saw them there and yeah. talked to them for a while. Were there but any? I don't see them very often. When when all you guys were hanging out together, were there any of them that you like personally gravitated towards? Like, oh, Garcia you... and I were total best buds. Really? Oh, we hit it off totally. Oh, no I shit. Used to go to his house all the time. We'd hang around and do stuff. We did all kinds of stuff together. He was a good guy, huh? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
smart, funny. Humble, right? Yeah, just a regular guy. And, and of course, a genius musician. Yeah. I remember Keith. Yeah, I got a good story about him in the book. In the book? Yeah. Yeah? Um, I've got a couple of them, I think. I'm excited to read it. Well, Ken, thank you so much for having me uh, here today. And thank you for lunch, and thank you for letting me catch up with you. Um, can you tell all the listeners where they can find everything that you're working on? Yes, I will. My biggest uh, outlet now is Facebook. I'm on there as Ken Babs, and I try to keep all my activities alive on Facebook. And also, you can buy on uh, Facebook. I have a page where you can buy my Vietnam novel called Who Shot the Water Buffalo. I have another page where you can buy a chapbook, which is a chapter from the big book I'm working on called Cronies. You can buy that on Facebook, and that... uh, uh, page is called We Were Arrested. The other page is called Who Shot the Water Buffalo? And my page is Ken Babs. And then I also have my website, which is uh, www.skypilotclub.com, in which I try to put stuff on there, but it's kind of taken a fade since I went on Facebook. Facebook is funny. In one way, it's a real brain drain and a time drain but on the other hand I sell a lot of books (laughs) (laughs) mission accomplished (laughs) thank you very much man Uh, adios amigo